the Fire Within Podcast. You need a sustainable plan, the right mindset, and the knowledge and inspiration to stoke the fire within. Just like the Phoenix, you can burn your old habits, never turn back, and emerge completely anew. There are no shortcuts. Welcome, Fire Within community. This is the Fire Within Podcast, where we talk about all things health, fitness, and nutrition related. I'm your host, Brandon, with my co-host, Joe. Hello. Welcome to the new studio. I like the new studio. It's awesome. Swanky. Branded out. Am I going to have to pay more for these? Yes. Okay, cool. We're really excited about our guests today. We have Gabriel and Tia. Tell us a little bit about what you do, why you got into it, and all kinds of stuff. And this thing's going to take all kinds of left turns. I can't wait. So we live on a little 1.7 acre micro farm, and we own a little uh, nonprofit called Half a Barn Farm. We teach people how to grow and raise their own food right where they live. So we offer classes at the farm and do farm tours, 4313 Mitchell Mill Road, Wake Forest, North Carolina. Are there a lot of micro farms in the area? There are not. uh, There aren't a lot of micro farms, period. Uh, We're trying to fix that. Um, There are a few in Raleigh, but there's, they're not well known. Yeah. Is the concept similar to like microbrewery? Like it's like, here's a hyper local special treat. It's. Most people farm on 50 plus acres. We're doing it on 1.7 acres. So we're raising animals and food and feeding ourselves on much less than most people will farm on. Gotcha. So it's, so is it like one part like a class, like how to be self-sustaining and one part like farming? Yeah, like it's really both, right? Parts. So, yeah, it's so, like <laughs> classes, education, building, and farming. Yeah. Cool. Because you guys also offer services where you can prefab, raise beds, you can get them started with raising chickens, raising bunnies. And all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 So it's not like they're going to your farm to buy tobacco. They're going uh, to your farm to learn about these things, see how you're doing it, experience a little bit of that firsthand, and then hopefully get excited about doing it themselves. Is that correct? Exactly. People aren't actually coming to our farm to buy anything. Um, That's what subsistence farming is. Uh, Unfortunately, the government makes it really, really difficult for if you wanted to come to my house and say, hey, that chicken looks really good. Will you sell me that chicken? I can sell you that chicken alive and that would be perfectly fine. But the second that I process the chicken and be like, well, here you go, you know, enjoy and good health. It's an entirely different ball of wax, but you can do it for yourself and it's perfectly legal and Hmm. uh, it's cost effective and way better than anything that you can buy in the grocery store. Oh yeah. Yeah. I feel special. I got a private tour with my one-year-old Luke and uh, we got to see all the animals. You have a dog that doesn't bark, a really cool cat put up with this. That was a good time. And an exciting male person. Yes. She's delightful. (laughs) (laughs) Inside joke. So tell us a little bit about the different facets of what you offer. Maybe let's start with the raised garden beds. I'm seeing a lot more of that now. People are excited about it. I think it's really cool. My wife's interested. So tell us about that part. Yeah. So raised garden beds uh, solves an awful lot of problems, right? A lot of people, when they think about subsistence, living and gardening and stuff, they think of the word buzzword permaculture that gets thrown around. And permaculture is awesome, but it takes a really long time to establish because what you're trying to do is basically chaos garden stuff together until it works together in this maintenance-free sort of way. It's very difficult to do. I've never Uh, heard chaos garden before, but I have to imagine that's what I do. Yeah. You need- we just kill things. You basically you need, no need a degree in order to get it right. Yeah. And it, it takes five years to really establish and start producing anything. A raised bed garden, however, gives you this little micro climate that's perfect for growing what it is that you want to grow. It's real easy to continuously amend the soil with natural compost. And it prevents 
erosion. So here in North Carolina, of course, we get these crazy rains like we just did and everything is washed out and Durham is all underwater, right? So doing a traditional type garden where you just till the soil, that that kills all the bacteria and chops up all the worms and really makes this arid mess. And then when it rains, it all washes away. When you build a garden box and you put all the dirt in there, you can just set that right on top of the really awful clay soil that we have here and it will stay put and then you can just plant right in it. So it's really cost effective and it helps you keep pests out of your stuff. It's just really, it's the best thing going. If you if you want to eat soon, do it that way. Yeah. yeah. It's a really fast way into getting into gardening. So some people hear gardening and they're like, I'd love to get into a fall garden, but they don't have time to sit and start amending their soil preparing the ground. And so raised garden beds gets you growing as soon as you have compost down. The other great thing about it too is you, a lot of people have the misconception that putting the bed on top of the soil is going to somehow not promote the same kind of environment as if you till. But what you do is you don't put barrier between it. You have the benefit of getting the good worms and everything coming up and getting into your soil. And you start actually, the good soil you're putting on top has the effect of improving the soil around it. Okay, so there's no fabric barrier between the bottom of your bed and natural soil that was already there. Nope, not the way I that see. we do it. That's yeah. cool. So there's some people, like we'll put down cardboard and stuff like that to smother out whatever grass or weeds. But if you're putting 12 inches of compost on top of that, it's going to smother anything anyway. So that stuff will just break down and it becomes more food for your food. Yeah. So okay. we, we don't bother with it. It's an unnecessary step. Is 12 inches about the right amount of soil is what you want to put yeah. in the raised bed? It's a yeah. good entry point because you get into more dollars with build and soil. And so 12 inches will give you the ability to still grow carrots. It's up off the ground. It's easier to reach, but you go 18 inches, 24 inches. It You're just, that's dub it's doubling. It's doubling and really, doubling. I saw a really funny TikTok the other day. It was a woman dancing in her garden because she was really excited because she had a pepper. Like she finally grew a yellow pepper. And she, then, you know, how they do little text things on the TikTok. And she was like, this is my $850 pepper. <laughs> I <laughs> saw that. All the, info, all the money she dropped into trying to get the garden working. And I think that's a lot of people's perception, right? Because I know every time I buy something from the plant store, I kill it immediately because I don't do the things you should do. I don't put in, I just dig a hole in the ground. I'm like, I'm going to stick that there and that's going to grow. And then it just dies in three well, months. Yeah, the I, reason we started our business is because... There's so many people that really would love to grow and raise their own food, right? but it isn't free to do, right? Like sure. there is, you do have to invest in some infrastructure, right? And if you fail, you know, yeah. you could have spent that money on groceries. <laughs> That's like a right? year worth of failure. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what our aim is to take folks and make it so that way um, it immediately you're successful, right? So they get to live vicariously through all of our defeats. So we're originally from Maine. So we've been subsistence gardening for almost 15 years, but we started in Maine, completely different climate. And we actually started on just a little over a quarter acre. We had 0.28 acres and our house was there too. Oh, so wow. we had chickens in a, in a garden and uh, in a neighborhood where we weren't really supposed to do either and, and did it anyway. Um, when we moved here six years ago, it was time to figure out what grew, how and why. And we just immediately put up some of the ugliest garden beds you'd ever seen in your life that were secondhand just to get some dirt in them and some stuff growing. And right. we had failure after failure. And now we can grow stuff, right? It's, you figured it out. Yep. Yeah. It was literally just a, a trial and error and take good notes 
and now yeah so that's analogous for somebody starting a training program with me or something or a nutrition program there's so much crap out there and there's so many different ways to do it i could help somebody figure out here's what works because i did it wrong first a mm-hmm. hundred ways and then got certified and worked with thousands of people and got it honed so you guys did the same thing with garden beds so they don't have to spend 850 peppers dollars to yield one pepper that's pretty cool. I didn't know this. I just recently learned that the majority of the stuff, like the pre-grown plants that you buy from Lowe's or whatever, aren't grown in our climate. So you plant them here and you're like two strikes against you already because that thing started out in like Arizona or something. Or at least in that. And, then, <laughs> and they're often grown hydroponically. And so when you take them from one environment that they're started in and put them in another environment, they don't do very well. Now for us dum-dums, what's hydroponically mean? Rather than being planted in soil, they're grown in water. Okay. And like those towers they sell? I thought that yeah. had something so to do with Towers, weed, but, but usually on. it's yeah. a much larger <laughs> circulation system and quite large facilities. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, now... What I'm excited about with the Reese Garden Bed, we've had a lot of shows on picky eaters, issues with childhood obesity and things like that. So what is the effect of growing your own food and how that changes the psyche of the kids? You guys have two thriving daughters, I believe. Two mm-hmm. daughters, yeah. And and so they've probably seen all this process and the foods they're interested in and what their blood work looks like and their development is probably a lot different than somebody who grew up on Kraft macaroni and cheese. And, and it's okay to still eat those things occasionally, but they've seen all that. So how has that impacted them? And, and how does this change how people view food? Both of our daughters are very active on the farm anyway. So they're not just helping to grow food. They're also feeding and watering their animals every day. They help to collect the food and har- harvest from the garden, collect eggs. They participate in chicken processing day. So they're fully active in all the things. And so they see where their food comes from. They get really excited about it and they want to eat it. Yeah. So now that we've brought up the animal side, let's talk about the chickens for a bit and then the bunnies for a bit, the processing and all that kind of stuff, what all goes into that. And also how do those meats and products differ from what you buy at the grocery store? It's really night and day. Let's start with chicken and then we'll get into rabbits. The chickens that you buy at the store, all of them were were typically raised by really well-intended farmers that don't have a choice in how the animals are raised. And if they could do it differently, they would. Is that primarily because the people who purchase and the chickens set the rules and guidelines for the farmers? If yeah, you're Tyson, you're like, this is how you grow a Tyson chicken kind uh, of thing? A hundred percent, right? What happens is that these farmers are heavily leveraged in their equipment and processes by the same company that's going to be purchasing it from them, right? So they get their chicks They have to raise the chicks out a certain way to be chickens. They have to use the type of facilities that they're told to use. Like a franchise. Like this is how it works with us. Right. Right. And if you try to differ in that in any way, they'll pull your contract. So now you have these giant chicken houses that were purpose built for one thing that- And I'm sure they have in their guidelines that you can't sell them to the competitor. It's it's (laughs) just that you're now bankrupt. Right. Are, anything Americans trust, it's big business to do things. Right. <laughs> the So the meat producing industry in this country is actually closed door. It's completely opaque. It's against the law to take photos or videos inside any of these facilities. All the videos that we have been bootlegged and smuggled out and these people have been prosecuted mm-hmm. and their lives ruined for doing yeah. so, right? Because you'd never eat again if you saw what was yeah, happening. The average American, if they actually realized how badly these animals are being treated and what the conditions are that they're being raised in and how gross it really is, not just in the growing and raising side, but then the processing side also, they are modern engineering marvels, 
but they're disgusting. Like it's, yeah. it was really gross. Like I don't want my food sprayed with chlorine or ammonia. Like I don't yeah. personally. Right. But that's the approved method of doing it. So that's what groceries, like if you go to any chain store and go get yourself your boneless, skinless chicken breasts, right? That stuff was broken down in a facility that was just like that. And it came from one of those giant chicken grow operations. Now, if you go to a farmer's market, you'll get a bird very similar, if not exactly like the type that we're growing for ourselves, right? Now, you'll have to get to know your farmer a little bit, but the birds that we raise on our farm are what's known as pasture raised, right? Which means that they're in a enclosure that's fully, so they're fully protected, but that enclosure gets moved around our property. So they get fresh forage every single day. So fresh grass, fresh bugs, and they get supplemented with grain and they're given water and they get to do all the things that chickens want to do for a handful of weeks. And then when they're raised up to weight, they get brought up closer to the barn where they're purged for one day. They're given no food and only water for one day. And then they get processed out and sat in a light salt brine for a couple of days and then put in the freezer. The taste difference is absolutely night and day. You go from something that's practically flavorless to something that actually tastes like food. And yeah, I can probably close. understand what you're saying. And let me know if I think I'm on the right track here. I did a lot of traveling to Haiti in a previous position. And you would buy like the chicken off the street. Like the woman would just be selling the chicken she just prepared. And oh my gosh, that chicken was so much better than any chicken you've had in the U.S. Because it was like killed that day and then you had it for dinner. And it was like, oh, this is what chicken's supposed to taste like. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've done some episodes on different documentaries that we've done and interviewed some different people, even some people that made it. And it's pretty gross. Like to what you're saying, is they just kind of, they just stick them in a cage and they just stick stuff down their throat. And then they're like, Hey, there's your chicken. And, and so you're basically eating whatever they fed it. It's not like it was, it's not so much a chicken anymore. It seems plus chloride yeah. and ammonia. <laughs> yeah. Part of it too is chickens are an animal. We can all love animals and still eat them, but it's also more honoring for allowing the animal while it lives on the earth to enjoy their life. Yeah. So our goal on the farm is only one bad day ever. I love it. One but, bad day. I like that. Yeah, and they were all running around. They had names. And yeah. and what was cool is you would take whatever you weed out of the raised guard beds mm -hmm. and you throw that to the chickens mm -hmm. and that helps that self-subsistence idea. And we were talking about permaculture a little while ago. Permaculture is more of a how you set it up too and not just the long-term goals, but our chicken coop lives inside of our garden, even though the run is outside of it. And the garden scraps go into the chicken run. For as, the soil. It, basically, right. they make compost in the chicken run. We rake that out and move that out to the compost bins that go back into the garden. So all three of those things work together very cohesively, and they live within 25 feet yeah, of each other. Yeah, chickens are naturally omnivores, right? So they don't want to eat a diet of genetically engineered corn every day of their life. It's been ground up, and that's not how it's supposed to be. They want to Like brand name corn, like Musana <laughs> corn or whatever, what like the genetically engineered- Monsanto yeah, yeah. or whatever. It's trust that big business. Like how, right. how many chickens have have you seen that are tall enough to eat corn off the stalk? Right. <laughs> it's not no, how the, the North Carolinian giraffe chicken. It's um, not a thing, right? Yeah. So what what chickens do in the wild? If you just let a chicken be a chicken, they scratch the ground because they're looking for bugs and worms and grubs, and they'll also eat the grass right from the top down. They'll just chew on whatever's green, and uh, they will also chase down the stray mouse. 
That's cool. And they'll fight I, over it. Yeah, and fight I, over they're, it. they're absolutely pest control. Like chickens will get after a mouse for yeah, sure. Yeah, that'd be a fun uh, way to do a pest control company. You just have a herd of chickens <laughs> and they you, you let them run around your house within a fence for a week and then you move on to the next house. It's just like the goats that you hire to yes. eat your grass yeah. yes. and your poison ivy. But now, what about chickens raised for eggs? How many eggs can one chicken produce? How often? How long do they live? All that kind of stuff. A chicken can live a really, really long time, but they're only really productive for about three years, depending on the breed. There are some variables there, right? Yeah. You could have a pet chicken for a decade, but it's going to be, it's going to start being a problematic bird in year four. Because Man, that sounds just like hiring an employee. <laughs> chickens lay on a 27 hour cycle, 27, 28 hours, and you get one egg every 27 or 28 hours, depending on the, oh, uh, the breed of chicken, right? And it's also based off of daylight. So you don't get eggs year round when the winter hits and the reduced light hours, you don't typically get eggs from your more mature chickens. Maturity. I did not know chickens were solar powered. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think they they are. are. I think they're yeah. all solar powered. About, about everything is really when you, when you think <laughs> yeah, about it. So. But uh, yeah. Plug? Oh, <laughs> so if you wanted to have uh, backyard chickens, you, you don't need more than six, right? Four to six for a, a typical family. If you want to eat eggs three or four times a week, it, it would keep your family in eggs. Now, oh, okay. if you wanted to There's get- Three dozen you know, eggs a week? Yeah. yeah. There's a the interesting statistic. If one out of every three families had backyard chickens- there would be no need for the egg industry whatsoever. So those giant buildings that are filled with slanted floors and covered in chickens, right, that stink to high hell and all the neighbors totally hate it and it ruins the groundwater and all that sort of fun stuff, that stuff could all just go away. And it doesn't take that much room. So your coop needs to be four square foot per chicken. So four chickens is only 16 square feet. That's pretty small. Yeah. And then their run needs to be- work than I thought it would. In, Chickens are five minutes a day. You'll probably spend longer because you'll find them interesting. They have their own hierarchy. A lot of our um, idioms come from chicken life. Getting your hackles raised, pecking order, that's all chicken stuff. And they actually make about 27 different unique noises to communicate with each other. Oh, wow. They're like dolphins. <laughs> yeah. yeah, There's some stuff that you need to know to make sure that your flock stays healthy. And it's mostly prep work and infrastructure to make sure that you're Coop goes in the right place. They have the right type of environment, that sort of thing. But once you have that stuff established and you understand how to care for them, chickens are easier than any dog, yeah. right? Like they, they just are. The, the amount of time commitment is So what goes into low. that five minutes a day? What's an average five minutes to take care you of the You collect the eggs, you top off the water and make sure that the water is working properly. And then you top off feed and that's it. That's it. It's really that simple. Once a month, you're going to clean the coop out, right? And then once every three months, you're going to do a deep clean, right? You want to make sure that there's fresh shavings and stuff in nesting boxes. Are there any know. companies that go clean coops, like people that you can hire to pick up your dog poop? Uh, not, not that, that I'm that aware of. of. Instead of poopers, we've, scoopers. We've helped people like, clip their chicken's wings, right? Like we've, we've come out to where their flock was because they didn't know how to do it and they needed it done. And we weren't for hire to go out there and do it every single time it's like all right we're going to come out here we're going to rescue you i'm going to i'm going to clip a couple of their wings and then you're going to clip the rest of them and that way yeah. you now know how to do it do you know the zach brown's band song sick him on a chicken no oh man what are the copyright laws to play a clip of that on the show illegal okay never but you mind. can sing it in its entirety oh you don't want to hear that <laughs> it's a good time check it out it's ridiculous it's absurd 
That's probably why I like Why it. do you have to clip a chicken's wings? Does it fly away if you don't? If you don't have an enclosed run, yeah, they'll yeah. fly. We have five foot tall fences and our chickens will get out. They can fly enough. You don't see them migrating south for the winter, but they can get out of a fence is what yeah. you're saying. Especially if they really want to. We have one chicken at home uh, who is super ornery at this point and she will just this figure out, she will hop up on the fence and it'll sit there and waver back and forth as she's like catching her balance barely and then she'll it. get out and she's the only one doing it right now is that the one you're chasing when i got there yes greasy yes, yes. <laughs> she is not going to be on the farm uh after <laughs> next weekend uh that's when i actually have some time to go she's going to get processed she's going to be stock and turn into pot pie uh that's going to be it for that old bird uh we, right. she we've has her, done a great job for, bringing up she many clutches of chicks yeah. so she's yeah. hatched out a bunch of chicks for us yeah so but, when you guys you let some of the eggs become chicks i assume and mm -hmm. then those chicks become chickens how do you choose which ones stay and which ones so go? all of the, we have a rooster his name's cogburn um <laughs> bonus points if you know the reference um the rooster is basically just doing his job all the time, making sure that all the hens are tended to and fertilized. So all of the eggs you can pretty much crack open any time and they're going to be fertilized. A few times a year, different hens will go what's called broody. And that's where they decide, hey, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to sit on some eggs and hatch them out. You can't force a chicken to sit on eggs. You can pull eggs at any time and incubate. We've done the incubation route. The success rate is not nearly as great as moms that raise out their babies. So we move mom with a clutch of eggs into our separate brood coop and uh, she sits in there for 21 days on her eggs and hatches them out. And then she teaches them how to be little chicks. So mm. how to get water, how to scratch, they're under her full protection. And there's nothing quite like a mother hen protecting her chicks. Oh, I bet. Now, how many, what's the time it takes for an egg to turn into an eatable chicken? Eatable a word? Edible? Edible? Apples so it depends on the variety. Yeah. If you have just a backyard flock of hens and you can get a lot of dual purpose, they're more heritage breeds that put on more weight and they're a bigger bird and they're not just bred strictly for... Orpington. Yeah. They're not just bred strictly for producing as many eggs as possible. Those are breeds that have been really bred down to smaller body types and high production. If you go with something that's dual purpose, you have 21 days from sitting to hatching, uh, you typically have 20 weeks until a chicken is considered mature for a hen to be able to lay. So you could basically grow out birds to 16, 20 weeks, and you could put those instead of having laying hens, or if you wanted to keep all your roosters, you can do that process the roosters, and that's your chicken. Now, if you're doing a Cornish cross, they're meat birds, they're actually considered sterile, because they've been crossbred so many times to get this certain body type for the chicken, that's from hatch to process is eight to 10 weeks, depending on how they're raised. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So they've been bred to have really light colored feathers, yeah. sparse feathers, because to eat the chicken, you're going to pluck it anyway, right? So they don't ever really fully feather out and they get real big real fast. Have you ever felt like you were just throwing weights around like an idiot at the gym, hoping to see some results? Or after weeks or months of working out, notice that the scale just isn't moving? You wouldn't cook without a recipe. So why would you train or start a weight loss program like the Swedish chef randomly throwing ingredients into a pot? You need a sustainable plan that's science-based and attainable. 
Fire Within has worked with thousands of clients and helped them reach their goals. So visit firewithinnf.com today. Get yourself the free ebook, read the testimonials, and choose a service that works for you. Choose from services like one-on-one nutrition coaching, one-on-one personal training, and more. Again, that's firewithinnf.com. Now, with the rabbits, I know you mentioned in about a year's time, you can yield 250 pounds of, yeah. of rabbit meat. Well, how about with the chickens in a year's time? Chickens, the economics are, are way worse, which is one of the reasons why, like it's the cost effective, the most cost effective way to raise protein on a, in a small space is definitely rabbits. Those numbers that I gave you was a trio of a medium breed rabbit. So if you have one buck and two does, their first full year of sexual maturity, provided everything goes well and you don't lose anybody, you'll end up with about 250 pounds of meat. The second year, you'll end up closer to 300 pounds. And the dollar per pound conversion to do that, and because it's self-replicating, is way less expensive than raising out chickens. Raising chickens, you need the infrastructure for, if you're going to pasture raise them like us, you need a chicken tractor, which is a mobile coop with rabbits, the rabbit enclosure doesn't move. So they they stay in cages so you can control the breeding and take care of the babies and stuff and check their weights and make sure everybody's gaining weight like they should. And you may not know the answer to this, but why aren't why isn't rabbit meat more mainstream? It was before the grocery store. Yeah. yeah. So before the grocery store, which is only about 70, 80 years old, people were raising rabbits in their backyard. Yeah. So it went out of fashion. So once the world wars one and two were over, you were no longer required as part of your patriotic duty to keep a victory garden and to raise your own backyard flock. People started going to the grocery store and it fell out of fashion. If you go overseas though, you can go to Europe and buy rabbit in a grocery store. And now our fancy restaurants, like there's a real fancy place downtown called Death and Taxes. You could spend 30 bucks to try some rabbit and some succotash and it's actually delicious. So rabbit started out as a aristocrat right? You had to be part of uh, royalty or the gentry in order to legally have rabbit, right? They oh. raised them. And then rabbits do what rabbits do, right? And Pump a lot. Yeah. They, yeah, they, yeah. They're really prolific, right? And they also dig. They would be able to escape and just get out. And then next thing you knew, everybody had them. And because everybody had them and they realized they couldn't really control it, the uh, gentry decided rabbit meat is stupid now. If everybody can have it, then it's stupid. Yeah. Then- it's not cool anymore, right? So then everybody had it. After the Second World War and the advent of the grocery store and the whole TV dinner thing and that sort of stuff, basically got told that if you grow and raise your own food in your backyard, you're a loser. You're not really providing for your family, right? If you can't afford to just go to the grocery store and get these the newest Whizbang 9000 and, and bring it home. Yeah, everybody was just sold a, a bill of goods that just isn't good for you. I don't know that I've ever really had rabbit. That's good. I like it. It's so rabbit tastes like a more chickeny chicken. More chickeny chicken. (laughs) It does, right? So whenever anybody says, oh, everything tastes like chicken, not everything tastes like chicken, but a a rabbit is almost entirely dark meat, right? It tastes like dark meat chicken, except for the tenderloins up, up underneath the ribs by the spine. Those are white meat, and they're just like the chicken tenderloins that you would take from underneath the breast meat, right? Yeah. You know how mm-hmm. the chicken tenders, it's identical in flavor and texture, provided that it's prepared well. And they are uh, amazing. The only difference when it comes to preparing rabbit versus preparing 
chicken is that there's no skin on the rabbit when you're done processing it. And rabbits don't have any subcutaneous fat, right? So there's no fat under the skin like chickens. If you take a skin on chicken and throw it in the oven and roast it, it will baste in its own fat and it won't dry out because it's got the skin layer on it. If you just take a whole rabbit and and throw it in the oven and try to roast it like you would roast the chicken, it's going to end up kind of dry and kind of stringy. It's not going to be good like you want. So you can either cook it quickly and brown it off. Bone in, bone out doesn't really matter, but fast and then done and eat it. Or you can brown it off and then braise it and serve it with some sort of sauce. And it's fantastic. One of my favorite ways to eat it is enchiladas. Rabbit enchiladas are completely insane. Also, the best pot pie we ever had was Was the rabbit rabbit pot pie. pie. It was great. Yeah, it had fresh carrots and green onions from our garden and just the rabbit, and that was it. And it was so good. Yeah, it was really good. Good stuff. What does process day look like? For chickens or rabbits? Rabbits. Either. Either. Let's start with chickens and then finish with rabbits. So chickens is a lot dirtier. Um, And longer. Yeah, and a lot longer. So with chickens, chickens need to be bled out. Right. So they go into a like a deer. Yeah. So they go into uh, a kill cone. Right. So the live bird goes upside down into a a steel cone and you slice its throat and break its neck all in one motion. And all the blood drains out into a bucket to get dealt with later. And once they've hung for a couple of minutes, you put them in a scald pot at 150 for about 15, 20 seconds until the outer scales will slough off their feet. And then we are blessed to own a chicken plucker. Plucking chickens by hand is awful, and I don't recommend it ever. They're miserable. You can rent chicken pluckers from people that own them to rent them out. But anyway, we bought one after plucking seven by hand one day, and we're like, we're never doing this again. <laughs> so you throw it into the, into the chicken plucker two at a time. It knocks all the feathers off of them, or most of them anyway. They then go into a cold ice bath. From there, you take the feet head and glands off the tail gland the oil gland you then loosen the crop the crop the crop is part of the digestive system it's where the food goes before it hits the gizzard if i remember correctly my dog likes gizzards yeah yeah and then so you have to loosen that and then make sure you get everything out of there and rinse them all off and put them into the ice bath with with some salt and it sits there for a couple of days that way it can go through the whole rigor mortis process. Because if you eat a fresh chicken, one that was just killed, it's going to be tough. It'll taste good, but it'll be tough. Okay. If you give it a couple of days to relax, it ends up being tender and fantastic. So you end up with all kinds of feathers, all kinds of guts, all kinds of blood, and you need to have water running all the time. And it takes a long time to go from the foot to the freezer, right? Earlier you said it you did seven in a day. Does that mean it took you all day to do no, seven? No, no, no. We just, did, just, we just a, did, That was a batch of seven. Yeah, so. we just had seven to process and it was awful. We just did 26 about a month ago and it took us three and a half hours. Yeah. Because okay. of the plucker. Because of the plucker. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. And there's ways for us to be more efficient next time anyway. And we figured out a couple of bottlenecks. So the next time we process birds, we're going to be processing 60. And I expect to do 60 in about six hours. Okay. Like total. Yeah. The, whole, the whole thing. We so basically it'll, it'll assembly line in. Yeah. yeah. So rabbits, rabbits are much, much easier. So you bring the rabbit over to the breaking table and there's a couple of different ways to dispatch the rabbits. I like thumping them. There are some people that, that stretch them. So that's a fork shaped apparatus that they you call it a put hopper their, popper. Yeah. You put their head goes above it, their body goes below it and you give them a yank and it, it separates their spinal cord. 
I don't like that way because there's, there's more of a chance of you getting clawed. So you have to do it wearing welding gloves and stuff. And I just would rather not. If you bring them over to the table and set them so their, their front paws are still on the table, but their chin is off of it. You hit them behind the ears and the right of the brainstem with a, with a thumper, with a, with a little mini bat and it severs their spinal column, just like the other thing does, right? It causes massive hemorrhaging in their brain. So everything is off right now. You then hold them on the table while the nervous system stuff finishes twitching. Um, and because they're there and you can control them like that, you don't have to worry about getting scratched or anything like that. And they can't, you know, flop around. Um, so I, I prefer that way. You make a little nick with a knife in their shoulder blades uh, after you've rinsed them off real good and got the fur real wet. And then uh, you just stick your fingers in and pull each direction. And the the skin, the fur all comes off like a sock, just that's being pulled two different ways. Remove the feet, remove the head, small little incision at the bottom of the sternum, reach up in through the diaphragm, trachea, lungs, heart, everything comes out crack open the pelvis to take the anus out of it and rinse it. It's way fast. It's a lot faster. It's a lot cleaner. The Any digestive juices or fecal matter from processing chickens is really dangerous and super unsanitary. With rabbits, there's none of it. Yeah. You don't have to purge rabbits. It doesn't matter. Yeah. it's. What do you guys do with the fur? It becomes compost. So the, some people uh, tan them. We have what's considered again a dual purpose rabbit. So you could keep the the pelt and do something with it. People used to make clothes out of rabbit fur, rabbit yeah. skin. I'm not big into wearing rabbit underwear anymore, but people used to. More <laughs> people used to. I've never worn it, but I'm just kidding. Now, f for people listening and they've never been exposed to this, like 80 years ago, if you were going to eat, you were doing this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to consider. Like um, you're eating today, it's being done. It's just exactly. Done. Yeah, so. <laughs> even if you weren't necessarily doing it 80 years ago, you knew your farmer yeah, who was doing who it. Who was doing it, right. So I, um, I know it, it sounds like I'm a monster talking about like pulling the guts out of rabbits and stuff, but it's- reality. Yeah. That it's, happens it's, to every single every animal single you're animal eating. Eat. Yeah. Every single one. And it's, I'm not going to lie and say that it's my my favorite thing to do on the farm. It's messy and it's, it's weird when you do it the first time. But I, as a kid, I grew up eating game meat. So that's definitely doesn't come from a grocery store. You've hunted the thing, now have to process it. Yeah. That's just part of it. So, but all things considered, I'd, if I was, if I'm going to eat something, I'd like to know how it was cared for. I'd like to know that it was treated well. And, um, you know, all of the animals that I process personally, um, it's a fraction of a second and it's over with, right? There's, they don't even, they don't even know it happened, right? Chickens, rabbits, either it's over before it began. It's a fraction of a second. They have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's tough for people. And I think the words that people like to use, like meat is murder, for example, or like you would need a human corpse. It's That's the only thing that's a corpse. An animal is a carcass. It's The terms aren't the same. Nah, uh, nah. It's not really. And just but we want to, I think when people that don't understand, they want to apply those terms to it, but the terms actually don't fit. Meat is murder. The uncomfortable truth about <laughs> Life is that in order for anything to live, something else has to die. And it doesn't matter what kind of moral superiority podium you want to try to stand on or put yourself on. There's no way to ex yeah. to es escape that yeah. cycle. In order for you to survive, something else has to die. So we actually got our first hater the other day, and she was a meat is murder person mm -hmm. and uh, hates our guts because we raise rabbits to then eat them. And that... and. 
according to her, they have souls and we're going to, karma's going to get us. And it was quite the, this woman. it was quite the thing. Pull it out of the ground. You're murdering the guy. If you want to, if you want to never eat meat and you want to be a vegan, that's fine. I don't have any problem with that, but it's, it's intellectually dishonest to think that type of lifestyle and choice actually saves more animals by eating that way because it doesn't. In order for your soybeans to be grown, to make your tofu chicken patty, right? They just ran machinery across a hundred acres of land and they killed every mouse. They killed every newt, frog, worm, everything. Everything there. Are you guys familiar with Vinny Tortorich? He created some Netflix documentaries on the vegan industry. We had him on the show. Fat, a documentary and fat too. And then there's a vegan meat one. What was it? I don't know. I don't remember what it was, but he's fantastic. He's hilarious. But he mentioned about the till, tilling the soil and just the amount, thousands and thousands of animals. It just also, everyone's very concerned about their carbon footprint this day, these days. And so what a lot of people don't understand is regenerative farming. When you're growing pastures and you have animals on those pastures, the grass is actually keeping the carbon in the soil. So all of it sequesters the, carbon. It sequesters carbon. So all of the cow farts that we're super worried about are actually being <laughs> the methane and the carbon in it is being actually sequestered into the soil where it's safe and protected. As soon as you start tilling land, you throw all of that carbon back into, back the, into yeah. the atmosphere. So monocropping is actually doing a lot more to destroy the earth and add carbon into the atmosphere than cow farts. Yes. <laughs> That's funny that you guys had your first hater. You would think that people would be able to understand the difference between a big corporation that's harvesting an insane amount of chickens and cutting corners and things like that versus a micro farm on 1.7 acres that their kids are playing with the chickens. And that's a different life for a chicken. <laughs> yes, my, my daughters asked if cuddling the meat chickens would make them taste better. <laughs> almost yeah. like tenderized they're just massaging the chickens right. it's like wagyu they're holding so the baby chicks you're I gonna have be pictures so of yummy them. yeah i That's love you dark. so much <laughs> yeah it's our kids have known where their food has come from forever and yeah. again i grew up eating game and so my children get exposed to game and i remember this funny little story we were living in this neighborhood right where we were having chickens we weren't supposed to have back in maine and we had some giant gray squirrels in the backyard. And I said to my oldest daughter when she was very young, I was like, man, that's a delicious looking squirrel out there. And she goes, dad, squirrels aren't food. And I said, oh, they most definitely are. Really? Yeah. Squirrels are definitely food. And she goes, huh? Squirrels are food. And her paradigm on squirrels completely <laughs> shifted later that fall. When, when it was open season on squirrels, I went out to an area that was this big pine forest where there was a ton of them and I brought a bag of squirrels home and, and she came outside with me and I processed them in the backyard so she could see me do it. I could have field dressed them there. I could have taken care of it and brought them home in a bucket, all done, no fur and been like, here it is. But I brought home the squirrels and she got to play with their tails and feel their fur and stuff. And then she was out there with me while I broke them all down. And, and then we ate them and my girls love eating gray squirrel. <laughs> so part of the funny part is we made squirrel and broccoli Alfredo yeah. and that set a precedent for her that all animals, all game that you kill should be made into whatever that is in broccoli Alfredo. <laughs> so fast forward five, six years, we're down here in North Carolina and 
there's a fox um, skulking around our chicken coop. And so Gabe has to kill it. And she asks us, are we going to eat fox and broccoli Alfredo for dinner? <laughs> and Gabe goes, no, we're not that hungry, honey. <laughs> that's pretty wild. <laughs> I wonder if that's something that's taught, because I don't think most kids are necessarily opposed to eating animals. I remember a very similar story. My daughter, she was young, and I went to my Uncle Terry's house and out in his pole barn, he's a deer hunter. And my daughter, she was like four or five, and she's looking up at all Uncle Terry's deer head. And she's like, what are all those deer doing up there? Where's the back of them? And I'm like, no, those are just the heads, honey. Uncle Terry hunts them, and then he eats them. And I thought she was going to be sad, and she was just like, people got to eat. Then she went out and started playing. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, to wrap this thing up, to summarize the benefits of what you guys offer, they're growing their own foods, which means they're not getting glyphosate wrapped up in their food. They know what it's fertilized with. They're creating a self-sustaining item. And if you guys are helping them with them, they're not doing it wrong for $1,000 to get one pepper. If you got kids, they're watching you grow and raise your food, so they're not used to all processed stuff. They're actually involved in raising their own food, have a different appreciation and outlook on food, which is awesome. You're able to, if you add the chicken and rabbit component, you're getting fresh eggs, you're helping carbon footprint, you're giving them a better life than what you'd be buying from the store, and you're not feeding those larger corporations money to continuously do this. So there's so many pros, I, not a whole lot of cons, maybe some additional setup at the beginning. Is there anything you would add to the pro side? It's really good for your soul. Yeah. There's actual studies that say that 10 minutes in the garden digging in the dirt will actually lower your blood pressure. That's a reason why they put gardens in jails and people build therapy gardens. It actually nah. helps calm people down and adjust your, your attitude. It helps nah. with depression and anxiety. Getting actual bare fingers into the dirt and getting dirt under your nails builds your immune system. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we've done episodes on grounding, too, with Dr. Clint O'Bear's research, too. And so there's actually they've done studies where your blood platelets line up better. And that's part of what lowers blood pressure is when they're all in a line versus in clusters, they can flow through the capillaries and things better. It's not, yeah, it's not. It's not hocus pocus. No, it's not pseudoscience. Like having your hands in the dirt is just good for you. There was a, there was a reason that when man was created in a garden. Yeah, that makes sense. I got a question. for us. If you guys, can you guys on 1.7 acres, throwing out if you want to go out to eat, because that sounds good. Could you just eat the food you guys produce? Or do you have to supplement? And how much do you need to supplement if you do have to supplement? If we wanted to only eat stuff that we produced, we would have to change some of the things that we were growing to do that more, right? And we would have to allocate some more of our land to doing that, right? So we would have to raise a very heavy starch crop and then like we would have to go. Yeah. And we would have to go without certain things, right? I don't have enough land to grow enough wheat to ever eat bread or pasta again, right? That would, I wouldn't be able to do that. Or olive trees for olive oil. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like that wouldn't be a thing. But if we wanted to struggle meal it up, right? Like for ever, yeah, you you totally could, right? But I really like bread and my wife makes really amazing sourdough. So we buy flour, right? (laughs) And, uh, and I like rice. We're going to have stir fry tonight, right? I, I also don't but have a rice pad. You don't do that as some kind of failure. It's just you're supplementing like anybody yeah. else. Well. But like if, if everything stuff. broke and we had to eat off the land, we'd be fine. Right. Yeah. yeah. It just would look different. It would be very protein heavy and very roughage heavy. There's lots of, there's lots of stuff that you can grow that grows all the time year round and you can eat it that 
you don't even have to farm. It just grows. It yeah. just isn't particularly yummy. We don't also grow any sugar beets or sugar cane. Like we're not growing yeah. any kind of massive amounts of sugar. However, these be will bees. be arriving on the farm. Yeah. So you have honey. So we, we will. will soon. Yeah, so we'll one thing soon. we do miss about Maine is we can't tap any maple, maple trees. trees here. So maple syrup, we're, it's part of our genetic yeah. makeup. So this isn't about becoming completely subsistent and not doing that means failure. This is about doing better for mm -hmm. yourself, better for the environment, which perfectly fits what we preach on this show. I'm In all transparency, I'm drinking bourbon while on this show. Do I recommend- Made from real rabbits. Made from real rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> and, Fed rabbits. Is that part of a healthy diet? Absolutely not. But we preach 80-20. What is sustainable for the rest of your life? I have people do better. I never tell a client, unless they're an alcoholic, to never have alcohol again. But if they're drinking three glasses a night, that's probably not great for their liver. Let's pare that down to maybe four or five drinks a week and see how that goes. And so if you can supplement most of your meals with what you're doing subsistence-wise, you know where it's coming from. It's better ingredients. You're taking a part in it. You're lowering the carbon foot. You're doing all these things. And that's an awesome project to, to, that's worthwhile. And just because we're not producing it doesn't mean that you can't make conscientious decisions about how you go about getting your flour and your rice and anything else that you're supplementing with. You can choose to buy better. You can choose to buy local. You can choose the, the healthier option. Yeah. And the things that we don't raise currently on our farm, we, we've decided to make the personal decision to support someone else that is raising it. So we're part of a herd share. When you came to my farm, didn't see my cow. I don't have room for a cow, right? But I can own a part of a cow, right? It's somebody yeah. else that has 50 acres where they have several cows and I get, we get fresh milk every single week and we make our own butter and we make our own coffee creamer. And now, for people who don't know what herd share is, can you give us the five second or five? What's the nickel tour? What is herd share? Herd share is, is just that like you, you buy in to someone else's cows and you pledge to support in return, you get a share of the milk, right? So if the share is zero that week, because they're not in calf and they haven't been refreshed, you still pay if they're overproducing, right? And they're producing a ton of milk and you're share entitles you to two gallons, you get three or four sometimes, right? Um, so that's how a, a herd share works. Yeah. So. And we could probably do a whole show on raw milk too, but is that part of the herd share program? Yes. You get? Yes. Cool. So yeah. raw milk is technically illegal in North Carolina, unless you become part of a herd share and then magically it's legal. Uh, okay. Same milk. And what are the benefits of raw milk? So raw milk, it's not pasteurized. So all of the things that people have a hard time processing in pasteurized milk, the beneficial enzymes and bacteria and all that stuff is existing in the raw milk product. Right. So people who are lactose intolerant typically just don't have enough lactase naturally in their own body in order to break down the lactose. Yeah. Well, raw milk has the enzyme lactase in it so that you have the abundance of lactase in order to break down the lactose. Once you pasteurize it, the heat destroys it. It right. breaks it down and you've lost all of that. There's actual studies too of kids with asthma drinking raw milk, having fewer asthma problems. The people with, that have a raw milk as part of their diet typically have better dental health. Yeah. It, it does a lot for your body and it's one of the most nutrient dense foods you can yeah. just have. Yeah. Now, we've done some research and seen a lot of studies on A1 casein versus A2 casein. Mm -hmm. um, is that only problematic post-pasteurization? 
Not necessarily. Some right. people just have a sensitivity to the A1. It's just a little yeah. more potent. We specifically make sure that our milk is A2, A2, which is why we buy from this family gotcha. and this farm. Very cool. Cool. Now, if somebody was looking to make a change, what are the top three things you would have them do to get to a healthier lifestyle based on your experience and what you guys do? The very first thing that I would have them do is... Uh, Grow something, anything. Get your hands in the dirt. Yeah. Uh, it's even if it's just herbs on your windowsill. Something, yeah. right? Get outside. Get in the sun. Get your hands dirty. Right. Start there. Uh, you're going to be astounded as just how good you feel just doing that. Just being out in the sunshine for the ten minutes a day that you're out in your garden pulling weeds and and getting your hands in the soil. Yeah. It's just really good for you. The added benefit of gardening is that. You also get to eat the food and it's unreal. The difference between a tomato that you walked 25 feet out your back door and picked and a tomato that was picked green, irradiated, and then put on a truck to it radiated to make it red, right? And then trucked to the store. Yeah. It's not even, it's not even remotely the same, right? One tastes like crunchy water and one tastes like a tomato. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is I would say, go back into your kitchen, start yeah. making food again. Yeah. Cook. So even if you're not yeah. necessarily pulling all of your food out of your backyard, get some good food and start cooking for yourself again. Yeah. Start mastering the art of how to put a good cohesive meal on the table, protein, healthy fat, carb, like you need to eat well. Yeah. And that's going to fuel you to, in order to grow stuff and be outside and to do the things, but you're just going to feel better. Yeah, Absolutely. Anything else to add to that? Anybody that wants to start growing and raising their own food, it's literally what we do for a living yeah. and it's it's how we pay our mortgage. So they can go to fabarnfarm.com. They can find all of our class offerings. We have a Backyard Chickens Basics class coming up in September. Again, the open farm tour is this Saturday, three to five. And yeah, we're, we're available to hire. We offer free one-hour consultations locally so yeah. we can come out to your backyard take a look at what you have going on, talk to you about your goals and put together a proposal for you and get you growing. Yeah, and you guys will prefabricate the beds too, right? And bring them and oh, build yeah. them we, on we, site. We, we yeah. build them and install them and, and the whole thing. We have two more installs going in this month. And yeah, we're so we're booking into September now, but there's still plenty of time to get your fall garden in. And uh, yeah. So just, Something too people need to know is that we offer the ability for you to get education in your backyard. Maybe you come and take a fall gardening class at the farm, but it's really not all of the things that you're growing. So you can hire us to come and give you a specialized education in your backyard. I will dig in the dirt with you and teach you how to grow and work in your space specifically. And so the goal is not to have me keep coming out. The goal is to set you off and get those training wheels off and have you off and running. Yeah, yeah. Um, the investment to have it taught right the first time is going to save you weeks and months and thousands of dollars. Of Saves you that thousand dollars on that pepper. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so a lot too, what we're trying to help people to understand is the only barrier to you growing something or to you having this sort of lifestyle is your mindset. No. It's not your space. It's not your experience level. It's just your mindset. Yeah. No. And that's what we're helping to change for people. Yeah. No. Anything to add, Joe? Two things. One, I want to hear, I want to get some information on this herd sharing thing because I always want to dress like Kevin Costner on Yellowstone, but I don't have a cow. <laughs> I feel like if I herd shared, then I could start wearing a cowboy hat. And two, I saw in this documentary once and it just smelled like BS. But anyways, you guys would probably know. 
I was watching a farm to table documentary where they grew the stuff and then just brought it into the table and the restaurant was on the thing and it looked delicious. Everything was great. And they said they had certain chickens that they only fed ghost red peppers to. And then the eggs came out red and they tasted spicy. Does that sound like it's plausible? Yes. Yeah, it's it's oh. plausible if that's all that you're feeding to them, right? Bones that, points to them for getting chickens to eat ghost peppers, though. I mean, they, they, they don't, they don't have ghost peppers. No, they don't. So they don't have taste buds that would tell the difference. So, chick, so chickens can't tell like humans. <laughs> so, no, so chickens can't. They don't taste capsaicin. It doesn't okay. have any effect on them. Something that's really common to try to make the yolks of eggs artificially orange is to put a bunch of crushed red red pepper flake in their feed. Or marigolds. And, and they'll, yeah. And or they'll, marigolds. And they'll eat That's it, That's actually right? what they're actually doing in large the um, production facilities okay. is they're feeding them marigolds to give them that bright yellow color. Do you think yeah. it would change the flavor if you did feed peppers? Yes. Yeah. If it was all they <laughs> ate, I'm, I'm sure that, that some of that would end up carrying over eventually. Just the, the old adage of... You, it's you know, the same reason why people eat. are hesitant to feed too much onions and garlic to your chickens. Because okay. it can, but yeah, if it's it part of a balanced yeah, diet and it's just part of your scraps going into I love your chickens, and garlic. I wouldn't care if a chicken tasted like I'm gonna yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you might if you're a fried egg in the morning. Did <laughs> yeah. that really orange yolk isn't necessarily indicative of this the you egg being value. super fantastic or healthy? What's indicative of a really healthy egg actually is having good membrane separation of the three mm -hmm. layers of the egg, right? So. When you crack an egg into a frying pan, you should have three layers, right? The yolk should be on top and it should be sitting proud. There should be a thick layer of albumin, right, which is white. And then there should be a thin layer of of the white that's should look like a three-layer cake. If it doesn't do that, and most of the ones that you get from the store won't, right? You crack it open, the white is one layer, and the yolk is sitting on top. That right? makes a lot of sense. I never heard it explained like that before but we recently stopped buying like the three dollar eggs and started buying like the twelve dollar eggs that are like the different kind that come in the fancy container and you open it and it's got Ch like the chicken's chicken name month. yeah <laughs> it awesome. does it has this but eggs was made by lucy or whatever and they do cook completely <laughs> different they do. like the cook times yeah, are vital farms vital farms that's yeah, it yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what it is and yeah. they're so much better they they're are honestly so much better yeah, yeah there's not there's nothing like it right a real fresh egg right from a chicken that got fed what chickens are supposed to be fed right yeah. is it's life-changing yeah. if you thought you liked eggs before <laughs> right try, yeah. try a real one yeah so one more time hit us with your contact information so people can find you Website, phone number, email, whatever. www.halfabarnfarm.com. We're awesome. also on Facebook and Instagram. You can email us at grow at halfabarnfarm.com. Yeah. Um, now, you guys are a wealth of knowledge. We could probably do three more episodes with you guys. That was cool learning about yeah. the albumin and the, the different layers of the eggs, too. Yeah. Sorry if you're weirded out by that stuff, but no, I thought we should awesome. probably put a disclaimer at the beginning. Hey, maybe you're weirded out. Now, now, the very first episode <laughs> we ever did, like 80-something episodes ago, just to be funny, I ended with eat shit and die. And then I said, but I have to cut it every week. I've never actually cut it. put it in. You know what? Let's leave that in. That's going to be the new tagline. Because literally, if you eat shit, maybe you won't die, but you're going to have probably less quality of life. In everyone's going to die eventually, right? But <laughs> yeah. you more than likely will have some sort of thing that you can link back to the fact that you have... Yeah. You know, yeah. nine pounds of undigested Pop-Tarts in your colon, right? We'll like, get so eat shit and die faster. Yeah. That? <laughs> Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. If you did, 
Go check us out at firewithinnf.com and sign up for Refuel, a weekly email with recipes, videos, and tips to stoke the fire within. Also, you can join the Fire Within community by being added to our Facebook group. And don't forget to follow us on social media.